Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. Today we have a special episode, and uh, as befits the tradition of special episodes, we are in two rooms. I'm not drinking scotch. Michael, are you drinking scotch? No, technically. Hi, I'm Ethan, and this is Michael, and neither of us are drinking scotch. <laughs> technically. I'm, technically. I'm actually looking forward to you unpacking that. Um, <laughs> yeah, this is this is one of our special episodes. If you're starting here, congratulations. We don't have to tell you to go listen to part one. I don't know. Um, yeah. <laughs> we don't, we, like... We don't even have a script for this one for me to ignore, so I'm floundering more than usual. But um, mm-hmm. today we're going to talk about vampires. Yay. And this is a very special day because, like, <laughs> we've done in the past for our special episodes, we've done really a handful, I think, of specials where we talk about first paragraphs in different ways. We mm-hmm. have the first paragraph challenge fairly recently. We've had some other first paragraph ones. And mm-hmm. um, in all of our specials, we... We suspend, we even um, flog the rules. Like, normally this is a very strict podcast with very strict rules, uh, but in the specials, those rules don't apply, and flount, maybe flount was the, is the flount. verb I was looking for. I was going to say flog, is it the, the 40 lashes minus one? Exactly. It's <laughs> sort of a, and that continues until morale improves. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Just to get all of the Renaissance Fair jokes out of the way here at the front. Uh, yes. So, yeah, we, uh, we, we don't care about the rules. And, again, we've, we've done specials quite uh, specifically sort of flaunting the rule where I am not allowed to say first paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, but to my knowledge, we've never done a special yet specifically flaunting the rule where Michael is not allowed to talk about vampires or to use the word vampire. Right. Um, that, you know, if, if he has used it in previous specials, he has remained unpunished, um, mm-hmm. which is, of course, a tragedy. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, like, we, we've never specifically gone into it. So this, this episode, you're going to get a little bit of, like, uh, Michael and Ethan before... There was a room with Scotch. We're going to go into the background of uh, yeah, why nice. Michael is not allowed to say vampire and and sort of what what that evolved out of. Um, and then we're going to let Michael sort of correct the record, if you will, and talk about <laughs> the vampires he had not been allowed to talk about before, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. at least to some extent. We may have to do more vampire specials in the future, depending on what volume of vampires we pack into the uh, the barrel that is this special. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. So being completely satisfied with that metaphor, um, I'm going to uh, walk us in by first uh, questioning Michael about what he meant when he said he's not drinking scotch, technically. Yes, well, what I am drinking this evening is a cocktail called the Smokin' Hot Love Potion. All right, uh, Michael, we try to keep this a family podcast. <laughs> like, I, even if there are challenging ideas, at least sort of the, the language is okay for children. Um, and I don't feel like i'll let i'm a i'll I'll let you finish but i don't Mm -hmm. feel i feel like perhaps this isn't going to sort of fulfill that requirement (laughs) but please continue 
<laughs> all right. But all know right. that I'm watching you. you. All right. All right. Well, I'm going to give you kind of the background on, on this, why I have this cocktail. Um, I ordered some bulk tea from a tea company that we were given a sample of a while ago, and I really liked it. Sure. And when that tea came in the mail, it also came with a bonus tea sachet of hibiscus cucumber tea and a recipe card for the smoking hot love potion cocktail um which is this uh, and the hibiscus tea is there because this includes a hibiscus tea simple syrup that you make from that hibiscus tea and that is why it is reddish in color that's the hibiscus tea in there um but the primary uh liquor base to it is mezcal mm. and the the recipe card uh went uh at I, length is maybe saying too much but it discussed mezcal and how it is apparently on the rise in popularity uh and the reason i say i'm technically not drinking scotch is because that recipe actually through i think just the slightest bit of shade at single malt scotch okay uh because it said in there that some bartenders are contending that mezcal is the new single malt with one exception or with one difference that mezcal mixes well sure so that's uh that's the shade they threw onto that but uh sure yeah um so yeah i have had now we should just fully own the fact that we are two very white boys from the upper Midwest, uh-huh. and mm-hmm. we'll say mezcal wrong. I think it's more like mezcal. They don't mezcal? hit that Z as sound as hard. It, I mean, probably sure. depends on your dialect. Um, but I'm not even sure about that. So we'll both say it <laughs> different ways, and then at least one of us yeah. will be wrong. Um, yeah, I, I have had mezcal, and um, it is very much like... I think I think I gave it to my brother for his first sort of dram of it and he called it scotch keela based on yep, yep, what he had had before it's it's very it, it's overlap with scotch is that it's very smoky um mm-hmm. it, it, but it, it you know it certainly has like scotch keela is almost like doing uh uh violence to its own identity right. because it it mm-hmm. has its own with the agave and and the way that it's yep. distilled and everything it has its own um character and and like flavor sort of base flavor profile with a lot of Mm -hmm. variation similar to scotch um and like whether your recipe was trying to throw shade or not like it's not (laughs) wrong um yeah (laughs) you have to have very specific cocktails to uh mix scotch like Mm -hmm. there there are scotch cocktails but they're very specific and they're very much constructed around just sort of an acknowledgement that scotch is a bully and like whatever you do to mm-hmm. it, it will always shine through. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had a few mezcal cocktails and they do tend to like, you know, a cocktail is supposed to have elements of each ingredient, but blend into its, its own new mm-hmm. thing. And, and I think mezcal in, I have very limited experience with it, but I've had a handful of cocktails, you know, based in mm-hmm. mezcal and like in within that experience, it, it's true. Like it's, it's, you know, I love my scotch, but I'm I'm not even mad at this uh this description no. that you've read me. No. <laughs> um yep. interesting. So you said it has mm-hmm. the, the mezcal, the uh, hibiscus simple syrup. And Did you uh, say what else just it has? lemon juice. Just lemon juice. Okay, so it's like a so sour it's, 
Yeah, it's kind of a, a mezcal sour. Interesting. Hibiscus mezcal yeah. sour. Yeah, that sounds really, really interesting. Cool. It's it's very tasty. Sure. <laughs> what are you drinking? I am drinking something called a Seelbach cocktail. Oh. S-E-E-L-B-A-C-H. Uh, I assume it's named after a guy. Um, it's an old pre-prohibition recipe. Um it and I think most of the recipes I've seen for it call for bourbon specifically, which is actually not that common in pre-prohibition recipes, because most of them tend to call mm. for rye in cocktails. Uh-huh. I have used rye because I like rye and also I had rye on hand. Um mm-hmm. but so so bourbon or rye and then um uh Cointreau is is or you know, orange mm-hmm. liqueur. Mm-hmm. And then, like, a bunch of bitters, uh, both Angostura and Peixouds, which are probably the two most common mm-hmm. bitters. Yep. Um, and that's all mixed together, and then it's topped with uh, champagne or, or sparkling Ooh. wine of some kind. Um, which, it's like a real weird mixture. That uh, sounds weird, but delicious. Yeah, it's, it's... As long as you don't need a cocktail that's topped with champagne to be sweet at all. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very good. <laughs> if, if, right, if you... like you're kind of just pulling the dry wine out of that. Exactly, as yeah. A highlight there. And I've made it I've made it with drier champagnes and with sweeter ones. And it okay. like it works both ways, I think, but mm-hmm. um, in no case does the final product really turn out very sweet at all. Right. Um, right. But I, you know, I like that. I like the drier flavors over the sweeter ones, mm-hmm. um, by and large. And mm-hmm. I, I like this this cocktail quite a bit. Fantastic. Cool. All right. Uh, so let's talk about vampires. Okay. Uh, Michael, you got a big grin on your face just now when I when I said that. <laughs> um, so we're going to spend the rest of the oh, episode. Should I hide my teeth here a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's okay. Later, I'll invite you in, and uh, we'll oh, we'll good. discuss your we'll discuss your grin. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> I know you would. Uh, yeah. So um, I don't know. Like, I'm trying to remember how much of this we've covered on the show or that we do cover in the rules. I don't think we talk very much about it in the rules. Mm -mm. So um, we may have covered some of what I'm about to ask you in our back catalog, but just for table setting purposes here for this episode, like what is your background connection with vampires? Or in other words, what in your sort of intellectual life and history would (laughs) make your ostensible friends, uh, what would sort of inspire them to ban you from talking about vampires, would you say? <laughs> now, you can um, plead the whichever amendment it is to not criminalize yourself, but I wish you wouldn't because then, like, we... Then we wouldn't have a podcast. Yeah, I don't have the rest of the episode if, if you do that, so <laughs> yeah. take that under advisement. Sure. Well, let's... Um, it comes from... Uh, my undergrad bachelor's thesis in English in college. Yes. Um, when it came time for me to write my thesis paper and find a topic, somehow I settled on the subject of vampires in literature. And I think, honestly, the way that came up was through 
the book Reading Literature Like a Professor. Yes. He's got a chapter in that book on vampires, um, which I thought was really fascinating. He goes into detail analyzing um, Daisy Miller by uh, oh, okay. Henry James and um, Mr. Winter or Winters. I can't remember. Um in there as a literary vampire, not a literal vampire, but a literary vampire. I thought, oh, there's a, there's actually a lot here. Um, and so I, I started delving in deeper into that idea and somehow settled on my thesis, lo- trying to look at the vampire of Humbert Humbert, the narrator of Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov, and comparing that because I wanted to get the um like that baseline vampire sure. out which this isn't exactly the the original vampire which is a subject of debate even in english literature it's not the first vampire but the most famous is dracula so yeah. um like, i in my thesis compared humbert humbert in lolita to dracula of dracula by bram stoker right i i was going to say i get very sort of verklempt when um People t- say say va- Dracula and just sort of say like, oh yeah, you know Dracula, the original vampire. Um, yep. I have no problem with the idea of Dracula as like the baseline vampire, especially yeah. <laughs> as vampire literature, you know, sort of developed after Dracula. You know, mm-hmm. everything somehow or another, whether by following his example or subverting his example everything kind of goes back to dracula you know that it's, comes after it's, it's it. kind of a a double bottleneck of dracula is how i i view it sure. like all the vampires before culminate in dracula sure. and then disseminate out from dracula so like if you look at the family tree of vampires in literature it's it's like a tree where you've got the 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 leaves and the branches going into now here's the trunk and then you've got the roots and everything. You can't sure. see any direct path from any one branch to a root without going through Dracula. Sure. And certainly like you have later, especially 20th and 21st century, like, you know, vampire stories trying to sort of shake off the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the dust of Dracula off their, off their t- coattails. Um, and maybe go back to earlier vampires like Carmilla or mm-hmm. yep. Varney the vampire often gets brought up mm-hmm. as like the first English language vampire. It's, I think he's supposed to be a, a satire of Lord Lord Byron, if I remember yep. right. Um, <laughs> you know, or other like folk tales or, or other like Ur vampires in legend. Mm-hmm. But it's like after Dracula, even if you're trying to avoid Dracula's influence, you're shaped by that avoidance. You're still in Dracula's shadow. Yeah, yeah. Like in one way or the it's other. There. Yeah. So that's that. So that's that's where the the thesis came out. Um, and um, after that point, and even during that point, I just started seeing vampires everywhere in <laughs> literature. Sure. And movies and anything. Um, And it just became this very simple reduction for me in analysis. And I could do it ad nauseum 
<laughs> to uh, add the nauseam of my peers, especially. Um, <laughs> sure. And it, it was kind of a game sure. for me okay. in, in a lot of ways where we'd be discussing a movie or, or a play or a book or, or something. And, and I'd say, oh, yeah, there's that. That's the vampire in there. Sure. <laughs> I'd be able to identify it. And no one would be able to actually deny that fact. It's just. <laughs> sure. So let's get beyond that. <laughs> I have two <laughs> questions. Else. I have two questions about that. Um, yeah. And I'm going to hit you with the first one before I give you the second one. So it makes sense. <laughs> I guess that's how lists work, really. Um, but what I mean is I'm going to let you answer the first one, and then oh, I'm going to okay. hope that one or both of us remember to come back to the second, to the second. one. Um, but they're related, so hopefully we do better than usual on that score. Okay, sure. so first question. You, you've you said now, like, you were finding vampires everywhere. Like, you could, you could yep. identify a vampiric character in anything. Give us like what the parameters were. What makes something a vampiric or someone a vampiric character? Just like that is it. You know how? Okay, you know how Albert Einstein supposedly, anyway, said you don't really understand something unless you could explain it to a preschooler. Yep. Explain it to me like I'm a preschooler. Okay. (laughs) Good. Um. Okay, so the vampire archetype i the way i conceive of it is the anti-christ archetype um everything that that you would see in a like messiah figure christ figure savior figure it's the opposite for a vampire so the the christ figure um is self-sacrificial the vampire is everything else sacrificial uh but to the point of even faking his own sacrifice in order to get that's 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 maybe the point the vampire pretends to give in order to get um that's uh, where it all comes down that one one of the um like ancestors of vampires that i i point to a lot is hades um and uh his uh kidnapping of persephone mm-hmm. the the daughter of demeter and the way he vamps her is he takes her to the underworld so to death and that's that's ultimately where where a vampire takes to a literal or uh, metaphorical metaphorical death uh whatever he's taking and while she's there in the underworld in order to keep her in the underworld he feeds her the pomegranate seeds uh which can be related to dracula in bram stoker who feeds his blood uh to his victims in order to keep them under his spell like you think of a vampire biting uh and taking that way and sucking the blood sucking the life force which is the more overt sort of taking of the vampire but uh it's it's more powerful and subtler in the giving that's so it, pretend giving yeah it almost seems like there's two different ways that a vampire sort of takes yep. life force from another person based on yep. what you're saying there's there's the direct route which is just like mm-hmm. they lash onto you they suck all your blood away and there's yep. we could go into we can the go leeching. into it yeah we can go into how that becomes metaphorical you know it's probably mm-hmm. pretty obvious um you know any like you just think of a i don't know any any relationship where it's like one person is rich and one person is, is has no money but sort of Mm-hmm. preys on the rich person emotionally or whatever right to get them to, them to give them money like that's a pretty direct 
it's right. it's Anyone metaphorical who's, who's in the a sense parasite is, yeah. is yeah, 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 yeah. that sort of vampire yeah yeah exactly it, like and and again you know what the thing i just said like you don't have to posit any supernatural or preternatural no. energy or or forces there that's that's just vampiric without being necessarily a vampire you know in the right folkloric sense i guess um mm-hmm. but then so that's that's an obvious one um but then then there's this much more subtle one which is the same thing but mm-hmm. with more steps um yeah mm-hmm. m- but both, it's, both it's more steps, steps that makes it more permanent and more solid but also um, more like harder to detect yep. and defend against yep. in the sense that it's 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 like like you said it's giving you something that um ultimately is not a is not a gift or is a selfish gift uh right i i remember someone i knew and um I'm being purposely vague on this but someone i knew <laughs> once said that their parents um when they were a, a child this this person I knew hated Christmas because when they were their when they were a mm. child, um, their parents would give them Christmas gifts and then say, "Okay, but since I got you that, you have to do this big chore." Yep. Um, mm-hmm. it, and that's the strings attached to the gift. Yeah, that, and that's yeah. that's maybe a really obvious sort of non subtle example of of what you're talking about, but it's, sure, it's but it, it like gets that. the same point across. Yeah. yeah. Uh. Or again, you know, I mean, drug addiction obviously comes up here mm-hmm. where it's like, that's that's the first thing I always think of when I think of like the, the pomegranate seeds is like, yep. there's a pretty direct, you know, metaphor or analogy, I guess you could draw with drug addiction where it's like something that's pleasurable. Someone who's giving you sort of mm-hmm. a, an addictive drug, like they're giving you something yeah. that's pleasurable in the moment and that seems pleasurable and you there's, think you want. And yet it's making a, you more and more reliant on them. And ultimately, you yep. know, they could be your, your master in a very real there, way. There's a line in a Florence and the machine song. That's basically <laughs> to that exact point. And I can't remember what that is, but didn't you send me like the music video of that song like years ago and say something to the effect of like, this is about vampires. Be. Like probably, <laughs> it sounds like something I would do. It's a very vague memory, obviously, from how I just right. said it, but it sounds yeah. very familiar. Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably probably true. Uh, yeah. So, is does that answer your first question? Yeah, I I think so. Um, so then the second there there are a lot more elements like yeah um vampire like I, I could go into like the tendencies and and like identifying a vampire it's like you've got this big checklist and vampires are going to fill like seven out of ten of these things sure I guess if, what if I'm interested seven out of ten that's a vampire you know sure and we we can again go into that depending on on where the discussion takes us I guess what I'm interested in is more like what's the base principle behind all ten of those things sure. And maybe it's yeah, maybe it's that, the the leeching and or the mm-hmm. the 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 thing that seems like a gift that is actually selfish actually or a, manipulative a taking yeah yeah, yeah mm-hmm. the the giving that's actually taking okay right um so my second question and I think it does it does dovetail really naturally and and it's based out of sort of what you were saying a few minutes ago about like you got to this point where you were seeing vampires everywhere. Yep. <laughs> and that's a very, like, there are things I studied, especially in undergrad, maybe in grad school also, where it was like, 
I I unlocked something new, some some new theory or mm-hmm. or idea or something, and like because it was such a brilliant theory or or a pervasive thing, like I would start seeing it everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. The the thing that comes to mind for me is media ecology, which is this field sort of created by mm. uh, Marshall McLuhan, which is something we don't have time or interest in going into. But the point is, once <laughs> I that was a class I took in my senior year of college. And once I took it, I started seeing it everywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so like that, you know, again, like that's a very, very classic college experience. And right. Well, um, I mean, like you can think of like psych majors who start seeing all the symptoms of all the (laughs) disorders in themselves or in their friends, med students, you know, becoming hypochondriacs. Yeah. Or, or psych majors (laughs) seeing psychological disorders in their friends or in their friends. um, (laughs) Or econ (laughs) majors suddenly seeing like the problems with capitalism everywhere. Yeah. 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 You know, probably every major has it too one extent or another um don't even get me started on people who take film criticism in grad school um (laughs) yeah so so you know it's it's a very recognizable phenomenon but my question Mm -hmm. about that then is the question that like everyone who's in that like if you if you happen to be listening to this and you're like 20 or 22 and you're having that moment here's the major Mm -hmm. question you have to ask yourself is basically how is this falsifiable? In other words, mm. you know, there's there's the old phrase to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, which actually yep. I think I got from Marshall McLuhan <laughs> uh, nice. and media ecology. But, it, you know, it's, it's a very apt phrase here where it's like, yep. if you're starting to see something everywhere, what does that even mean at a certain, like, how do you, oh, sure. how, you know, how do you differentiate vampires from all the other information, even about an individual piece of media. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, again, I guess the other way I could put this is like, if you looked at something and saw a vampire and someone just said, you think everything is vampires, what's your defense? Like, what do you, how do you sort of Mm. differentiate that? Okay. Um, Well, to an extent, I think... Oh, let me think how to phrase this. I, I think there there's an extent to which the vampire paradigm sort of fits the mold of like um, Joseph Campbell's Ur story idea, hero with a thousand faces sort of thing. You know, like every story fits this mold in, in one capacity or another. Sure. Where I think he's super guilty of that exact phenomenon we're discussing. Sure. Um, to a fault. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But... Um, I, I think at a certain point, vampire simply becomes a, a simple handle for describing conflict in sure. a story. And so at that point, you could say, well, does every story have conflict? Sure. And... One could argue that in order to have a plot, there has to be conflict. I think that's like courses have been built upon that. Um, and so wherever the conflict is, there's a vampire involved. You could you could decrease everything in that regard. Right. Is that necessarily helpful? No. <laughs> right. I guess that... um, like there are certain stories and and types of stories and types of conflict where you could say that's a vampire, but that's not the most helpful metaphor to use. Okay, sure. So it's almost like... 
you know, every story has conflict. That is what makes a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably every story has to have an antagonist. Yeah. Um, of some sort. Some sort. Like, I'd almost <laughs> you know, you say... You think of the classic model of, like, you know, man versus man, man versus right. nature, man versus God, man versus self. Like, the whatever man is versus is the vampire there. But then, like, as you progress, maybe the man himself becomes the vampire well, versus whatever else he's against. And here's then, the... So, like, whatever the conflict is, there's a vampire in there. But, yeah. <laughs> sure. Here's the question I was gonna... I was sort of aiming at, which might be the same thing in different words or it might not. Um, okay. I, I would almost say all every story has to have an antagonist much more mm-hmm. surely than that every story has to have a protagonist. I would agree with that. Um, <laughs> and so maybe there's like a list of types of antagonist and maybe vampire mm-hmm. is one of the things on that list. And maybe they're all mm-hmm. versions of each other, but maybe there are yeah. some where like vampire is the most helpful, like specific... Mm-hmm. verb or not verb noun rather um to yep. use uh instead of some other other noun that's more specific than antagonist right yeah and i think that's that's definitely part of it and then too just because vampire you know when we talk vampire we're thinking dracula right which is a very specific thing but the the history of vampire is also something so nebulous that you can make things fit more broadly with sure. a little more wiggle room there into that idea of vampire. But again, how helpful is that? Right. Well, again, um, like I think you know, there's there's a couple different things. Are we talking about vampires as like a folkloric phenomenon that yep. Bram Stoker picked up on and sort of used mm-hmm. to his own ends, or are we talking are we taking that as an archetypal thing and using it? to describe something much broader. Mm-hmm. And I think the second thing, the archetypal thing, I think that's valid. I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it just becomes a matter of like, like circumscribing it to say like, these things are the most helpful to talk about vampires mm-hmm. and things outside of this maybe aren't. Or maybe that's not even the best right. metaphor for it, but it's something like you have to have a limiting factor at some point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And yeah. One they, example they and like, uh, I want to get into you giving examples. Um, sure. But like just in this specific connection that we were talking about, a re- like just a thing that really jumps out to me from my own, you know, media consumption um, is the movie The Founder. Are you familiar with this movie? No. So The Founder, uh, Michael Keaton plays Ray Kroc, who is often uh, credited as the guy who created McDonald's. Um, ah. And oh yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ray Kroc. Yeah, it's in in like the movie. I don't I don't know how much. You know, um, what am I trying to say? I don't know how authentic to the historical facts the movie is, but like as a movie, as sort of a period piece or a or a you know fictional bio- biographical picture, like it's a really good movie. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely worth seeing. But uh, I like. I feel like I wanted to text you while I was watching this movie. And I don't know mm-hmm. why I didn't, other than just, like, I didn't want to text you a wall of text or something. But um, in The Founder, so 
again, the way that the, this this uh, movie depicts depicts the the events, Ray Kroc is like an itinerant um, salesman, and mm-hmm. he finds this method of running a burger stand uh, created by these two brothers, and it's it's like this really efficient way of like turning out a really good product in in like really fast time, so they can work through. Right lines really quickly right like you know mm-hmm. they have a line down the block but no individual person is waiting very long for their hamburger um right and ray crack basically studies this and then takes these methods and like he tries to go into a partnership with the brothers and i don't remember how like what all the details are in the movie but basically what ends up happening is like he steals all of their methods yep and kind of cuts I them out studying that for some reason i feel like in high school or something so like oh, the, i'm, I'm the actual fairly story? familiar with the actual history okay. of mcdonald's in that way sure um but one thing that i like a, a like visual leitmotif in this movie is always uh ray crock as portrayed by michael keaton staring into mirrors um, mm, like mm-hmm, literally sure. the first shot of the movie is him looking in a mirror, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it, he's like practicing a pitch or something, right? He's okay. trying to sell something. And then there's like right about the midpoint of the movie, which is traditionally like a story turning point, you know, um, there's actually like a scene where he stares at himself in a bathroom mirror and it's like the mirrors are facing each other. So it's that effect where, you know, it looks like, yeah. Mm-hmm. mirrors reflected by mirrors reflected by mirrors and like visually speaking like the movie really focuses in on that in a way that's like yeah not accidental you know what i mean when you can tell yep that a filmmaker or a cinematographer is like almost throwing something in your face on purpose mm-hmm. um okay and to, so to... yeah no no i was like literally yep. my question is I don't want to lead you, but I think you're going where I want you to go. Like, what is your interpretation of the facts I have just presented you? Two things. Yes. Um, I'm going to start with an observation and a statement, and then I'm going to ask you a question, which might follow with more observations and statements. Excellent. First, the observation and statement, the mirror thing um, with vampires and like, how old is that, that vampires don't make a reflection? Who cares? <laughs> um, it, it's, it's an observation of a fact in the vampiric archetype that, a vampire is a solipsist. Sure. Uh, and that's, that, that is at the core. You can't be a vampire without being a solipsist. So there's a limiting factor sure. um, for you there. Uh, so to a vampire, everything else that exists is simply something to be consumed by the vampire. Sure. It's simply something to be possessed by the vampire. That's, that's it. The vampire himself is all that exists. Sure. Um, and the fact that a vampire like Dracula doesn't cast a shadow, wouldn't show up on film, um, doesn't have a reflection, that sort of thing, is just pointing out the fact that what the vampire thinks of himself is wrong, um, that he is not all that exists in the universe. Because if he were right in that, uh, if he did cast that reflection and everything, well, then the vampire is God, not a vampire. <laughs> Um, (laughs) so, so like in a, in a film sort of situation where you emphasize the reflection, uh, what that does as far as like film theory and stuff is it shows you not a reality. It shows you what's going on in the mind of the vampire. That's how the vampire perceives himself. Right. And so with Michael Keaton, with those multiple reflections in that way, he is everything. Right. Yes. He is 
the solipsist. But he is the, all that exists. Everything else is for his consumption. The place that it disappears is the fact that you as a viewer are watching it. Exactly. You yes. get to judge um, him. So there's, yeah, there's where that film film theory comes in on on that. Yeah. Um, whereas, like, the, the explicit lack of a reflection just makes that overt. Sure. Uh, and, um, it's like the way. same thing being done in two different genres. The lack of a reflection is sort of a more folkloric, almost poetic or, yeah. you know, uh, heightened um, version, whereas the, the the film is, at least as I've described it, is doing it in a more realistic way, but that still draws on some of it, that folkloric, mm-hmm. like like poetic or, or uh, you know, Jungian archetypal kinds of, kinds of things. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So, okay, there's there's my observation sure. and um, statement. Now the question, does Michael Keaton eat anything in the movie? Oh, that's a really good question. I can't remember him eating okay. in the movie. Um, yeah, see, if I was smarter, that's another and- thing I would have kept track of instead of just the super obvious mirror thing. Um, right. <laughs> Because like and and it's interesting too because like there's a whole history of showing people eating in movies because it does something yep. very specific on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and that's that's okay. So here's here's that that uh, duality um, between like the Christ figure versus the vampire figure. Yeah, that eating can do at its core kind of two things. Uh, it it turns the eater either into a communicant. Um, so you're, you're together in the, the eating, uh, it's, it's a joining thing, which that itself can be corrupted into the second version where the one who eats is the predator sure. or the vampire. Um, and so that's where I, I could see it happening in, in multiple different ways with this movie that either Michael Keaton never eats a thing, in which case he's simply offering all of these things yeah. as that vampiric gift. Or he's eating, and where is he looking when he's eating? Sure. Uh, and like, if he's looking at the stand, if he's looking at the the owners of the stand, that's who he's eating. Sure. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I feel like again, it's been a while since I watched this yeah. movie, and I feel like I there isn't a scene of him eating, and there I know there are multiple scenes of him like giving people things to eat or drink. Like one mm-hmm. key scene, he demonstrates. Um, the like McDonald's like where you you know have a little plastic thing full of powder that you pull and then mm. it turns into like you add water and it turns into a milkshake but right. i remember him like demonstrating that without consuming it himself so like yeah there's definitely something that's there that that's where i would be more inclined to think just based on your brief description i would expect he probably doesn't eat right. anything or if he does it's a scene of him alone. Yeah, sure. And the, and like this is this is sort of what I was asking about before is like, you know, we can test these things in that you in as much as you can test mm-hmm. anything in sort of a literary filmic you know storytelling sense where everything is very um, ambiguous and subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, but but that's different from just saying pointing at everything and saying, well, that's a vampire because he's. Yep. consuming light <laughs> from the sun or whatever you know yeah right <laughs> i mean like yeah you can you can reduce it to just about anything right and again, and like really you said to. like you said with young and or with um uh joseph campbell who drew on young like 
that is the major flaw in his system is like anytime mm-hmm. anyone leaves their home to do anything, you could call it the hero's journey. Yeah. But like, I think you pointed something out. Was that in relation to Joseph Campbell, the idea of like the birth canal that's like always present? I think we were watching the labyrinth or something when you brought that. Yeah, up. that was, um, <laughs> there was, so the, the person who taught me the most about math when I was in high school was a tutor I had, um, <laughs> This took a turn. And yeah, I was I was like trying to figure out how to phrase this so it doesn't sound like anything is weird. And I'm just going to have to say nothing about this relationship was weird. Um but this tutor Which calls into a question everything about it. Yeah. Anyway. But but she she like just told like she was like, "Okay, you know, it was like the we were done with math for the day and she was like, "Okay, this is a theory that someone I know has." And mm-hmm. all I'm saying is I can't take credit for this theory, but like, yeah. yeah, um, at an impressionable age, I was given the theory that every film has a birth canal. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, the, it's always like anytime, like there's a boat floating down a river and you know, you show the banks of the river and the boat in between, like that can be a birth canal, mm-hmm. but it is right. like, it's a similar thing where it's like, sometimes it's more like explicit in a literal mm-hmm. or metaphorical sense than others like in the matrix when um neo first uh hops out of out of the matrix like when they rescue mm-hmm. him from his pod and he goes like through this tube and exits it and like there's all yep. kinds of liquid and also he's like literally entering a new world that he never yep. could have conceived of it's like okay you're like, not being yes, subtle, the Wychowskis. Like that's that's no. literally a birth canal. <laughs> you know, like yes. so. There's you know again, it's a it's a similar thing where it's like uh, some birth canals are more birth canals than others. Right. Um, if we say yeah. birth canals one more time, I do have to put the explicit tag on this episode. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so unless there was anything you wanted to to follow up on, uh, I guess I'll ask my sort of last broad question for you, Michael. Sure. And then we can do anything you want after that. Anything if there's anything. Want? Thank you. Um, which is just like, we promised to get into vampires in some of our books that we've covered on this podcast. So I want you to like, and like, you know, Tim. as usual, uh, we've taken much more time place setting um, <laughs> than we expected to, even though I should expect it because that's the expected anyway. It's, um, the point is try to usual. like as much as you can while satisfying your own needs. Um, oh boy! Like try to kind of speed run us through some of your examples, yeah. or if you just want okay. to pick uh, one or two and here. dive down, do what uh, you want. I'm not. Well, that's where I wanted to go next uh, too, was to talk about our podcast and the vampires that we haven't discussed yes. among our books. And so, like, the the rule for me not talking about vampires actually came when Josiah was our guest for Till We Have Faces. Very early um, on. Very early. That was our third episode. And I don't think I talked about vampires in the first two episodes. And that was, like, as a personal challenge. Like, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to bring it up here. I think that's you know, sort maybe of. I'll bring it up in a later episode. I think that's sort um, of why that rule came up is, like, you were already sure. doing it. We weren't mm-hmm. just being mean to you. No, we were being mean to you, but not just. Sure. And that's (laughs) fine. Like there's, there's plenty of analysis to, to have without talking about vampires, but okay. So the first one I want to bring up is actually from our second episode, 
uh, East of Eden by uh, John Steinbeck, yes. because the example of the vampire in that book is actually one that I mentioned by name in my bachelor's thesis, and that is Kathy Ames, sure. um, who is the, you know, the seductress type uh, who uh, comes in only to destroy. Uh, she's uh, more nihilistic, perhaps, than solipsistic, but that you know, goes hand in hand. Right. Um, if you're if you're nihilistic, you're sort of by default solipsistic. Yeah, by you cuz cuz you're basically saying, well, if I can't see a point, then no one should. Like Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's uh that's the the first big example I want to bring out is is Kathy Ames in uh East of Eden. Um and then I I want to go back to our first episode too because uh this is something when we first read South of the Border West of the Sun, uh-huh. uh Yes. I, I I think in our like text chain about it, I talked about the vampiricness of the narrator um, right. Hajime, and uh, which which is just a whole subsection of this idea of vampires in literature is the vampiric narrator, right? Um, which is more intense than the unreliable narrator. Like Huck Finn is an unreliable narrator, but he is not a vampiric narrator, right? Unless he Humbert is... Humbert is a vampiric narrator. Now that's unless Huck Finn is a serial killer. Unless Huck Finn is a serial killer, which, you know, is uh, a very, very plausible theory. Yeah, which you say without <laughs> any self-interest at all. None at all. Um, Hajime in South of the Border, West of the Sun is potentially very vampiric in the sense of, you know, just how unreliable he is and what happens to the, the woman. I'm forgetting all the, the names and everything, but like there, we mentioned that interpretation that like, maybe he kills her, which I think in our discussion of that first episode, I, I thought, you know, it's, it's not as certain as maybe I first thought that, yeah. Oh yeah, he definitely killed her. I think we but just that we went opposite directions on that. Like, yeah. I started out less sure and you started out more sure. And by the end we had, we were, and then we were both reversed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Um, but that just men- uh, brings up the whole concept of the unreliable vampiric. Yeah, and the, the vampiric narrator, the one who's like vampirizing, because yep. you're right, this is something we could have gotten into that we didn't. The one who's vampirizing not just other people in the story, but the reader themselves. The reader. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a whole, you know, that's another layer mm-hmm. on this cake, basically. And that's. That's like a huge thing. So I've been listening to the Lolita podcast oh, yeah. uh, off and on that you mentioned. And like, I, I, I told that's... you about it and I have not listened to it. Okay. Well, like the, uh, what's her name? The host of it. Shoot. Anyway, um, like basically her main point can boil down to this fact that Humbert Humbert is a vampiric narrator. Sure. And that means that he's going to take victims uh, in the readership. Because the gift, the vampiric gift of a vampiric narrator is the text of the book itself sure. um, in order to make you in his own image. That's what a vampire does. He makes more vampires by killing the victim and then making them in his own image. Sure. And so that's what Humbert Humbert does um, to his readers. And so how many analyses there have been of Lolita as a love story <laughs> of uh, Humbert Humbert as a hero of uh, all these different things that take Humbert Humbert's side, which is absolutely the opposite of Vladimir Nabokov's point. Um, 
But it's Humbert Hubbard's point. So the, right. that that shows the efficacy of the um, vampiric narrator in that sense. And I mean, while we're in this uh, exact place, um, I don't want to go on at any length about it, but almost mm-hmm. every single one of Gene Wolfe's narrators um, mm. very much fits in here. Uh, Gene Wolfe is known for the unreliable narrator who is... I don't know if I want to say usually or often mm-hmm. vampiric, but certainly one yes. or the other of those. At least vampiric to a certain degree. Sometimes it's like there's there's vampirism, but there's also more going on or something else going on. But mm-hmm. sometimes it's like purely just vampiric. Right. And that's where, you know, the the one book by Gene Wolfe that we discussed on the podcast, A Borrowed Man, yeah. I'm not sure how vampiric that narrator is. He's unreliable. Yeah. But... I don't know about vampiric. It sort of depends um, because like the thing Wolf does is usually his first person narrators are narrating for someone in the world of the story. Right. So without going into it too much, I think the narrator of a borrowed man might be vampiric to the people he's telling the story to within his own world mm-hmm. rather than being vampiric to us, the the people right, in this beyond world. that layer yeah. there. Yeah. Um, another, uh, big one, uh, that, uh, a big vampire, um, that's like more obvious, uh, among the books we've discussed is it in A Wrinkle in Time. Sure. Um, the, the giant brain that controls people. I mean, obviously <laughs> right. it's just making copies of its own, uh, its own ideals. And well, and like, it, this is the perfect society and I'm making it this way. It goes into um, the solipsism as well. The Yep. You know, mm-hmm. both it even touches on like the nihilism thing, but especially yep. the solipsism mm-hmm. for sure. Right. Um, and then um, you've got uh, the narrator of The Plains by Gerald Murnane. Right. Um, who's trying to make this perfect film and everything. And so there, there's another, um, I think, potential vampiric narrator. Sure. Um, as, as he's relating this to his audience, but also like trying to come up with this perfect film thing that like just the, the idea that that's something that needs to happen. Right. Is kind of a vampiric thought. Right. <laughs> um, because he needs to have the perfect film. You have to have other people perceive it as perfect. Exactly. Yes. Uh, and yeah, so it, it, it's, it's an artistic perf- uh, expression that, uh, he feels the need to call perfect, which makes him the solipsist. Right. Anyway. Um, so, yeah. That's, and, I, and I think right, that's especially that theme of solipsism is like something you could pursue through that novel even more so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think absolutely. Especially that's a, with that's that, a big one. With that character specifically. Uh-huh. For sure. Um... There are literal vampires in one of the books that we discussed. Yes, if you didn't bring uh, that up, I was going to bring it up like okay. as a capper, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, Soulless by uh, Gail Carriger. Right. Um, and as much as those are literal vampires, they're not literary vampires. <laughs> right. <laughs> like the villain of the story, whatever um, whatever his name is. Um, sure. Yeah. Uh, he's a literary vampire uh, in kind of the most basic villainous sense right um so that's that's i don't know that's that's pretty pretty clear like for anyone who has 
you know, kept up with the canon of the books we read on this podcast, like, that might be the best counterexample of, like, sort of the folkloric vampire operating on that level Mm -hmm. as opposed to more the literary or psychological levels um, that some of these Mm -hmm. other vampires operate on. Yeah, which, like, there's that whole section of this family tree of vampires in literature, which... I'm using literature in the broad sense, including film and um, all other sorts of media. But um, that uh, that branch is taking the flavor of vampires, especially from Dracula, mm. and turning it into something not vampiric. Um, sure. If that makes sense. I'm, I'm just struggling with whether I want to call it not vampiric or just like more shallowly vampiric. Yeah. It's, it's vampiric. Yeah. Within the world of the story, it's vampiric in a very right. literary sense, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's, I don't know, because like when you're going into fantasy or, you know, stories of the supernatural or whatever, um, right. sometimes you just get this, this, if you go in far enough, you get this thing where it's like, within the world of the story, this is normal. So you have a vampire in the mm-hmm. sense that like, the rules of the world are such that there are creatures who live by sucking blood, but there's not necessarily any like correlate to like the mythological levels or the psychological levels or any of that. Mm -hmm. And like, that's not inherently wrong or bad. It's just a very different milieu from the vampires we've talked about for most of this, the special like, okay. So twilight that I just mentioned. Sure. Um, I can't remember if I actually said this in my paper or not, but it came actually out of something you said in a presentation or something, um, before I wrote my thesis at college, you said something about how, um, Edward Cullen has stolen all of our women. Oh, I wrote a sort of weird, like, you could call it a Mm -hmm. short story or like a fictionalized essay or something. And it was like, yeah, it was a whole thing about Edward Cullen stealing all of the women, which is a very, right. It's an extremely, (laughs) I was 21 years old in the year 2010 (laughs) energy. Like possibly unless you were exactly that. And a man, like a heterosexual man who was 21 in 2010, possibly this piece I mean, I had some. I had that, some. That's uh, who it speaks to. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna exactly say I had some female to. friends who also thought it was hilarious. So like, maybe I shouldn't limit it yeah. that much. But very no. much like you were twenty-one years old and like the sort of person who would know about Twilight in two thousand ten. Like, yeah. it, it it was a piece that had about a nine-month shelf life. Uh, but it was basically sure. sort of this fictionalized thing about I don't know me as the author like going around finding that edward cullen had like had had stolen all of the women had like like none of yes. them would pay attention to me or any of the rest of us men because uh, like ed had them edward all cullen. i don't i yep. that is a blast from Which, the past that i was not expecting to have on this episode well the, like the, a, the point Ethan, i'm bringing up is, is like i reflected kind of upon thing. that more than i wanted to because you did what more than you wanted to I, I reflected oh. <laughs> on it more than I wanted to because, like, it, it's so there are no vampires in Twilight in this literary sense. Right. I, I think that's a sentence that I put into my 
my thesis paper. I remember something very funny. similar at the least, yeah. But that makes it a vampire. Like the book itself is a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> See? Yeah. Uh, we talked we've anyway, we've that's... we've talked off mic about like whether this needs to be a one part special or a two part special or a nineteen part special. And it's like yep. part two might be expanding on vampires in the books we've discussed because like we haven't even gotten to despair for example no nope. um but part three might be twilight the book as vampire as vampire <laughs> <laughs> oh good um yeah which i did read the entirety of the first twilight novel in order to prepare for my oh buddy thesis some of us in 2008 had a mad crush on name redacted um and who was a big fan of all the twilight books at that time Mm -hmm. and some of us realized that we were very good at reading and that no other boys would read the twilight books and did read them Mm -hmm. literally just as a way to you know have something to talk about with our crush name redacted um Yep. <laughs> so yeah, like I am, I have no, you know, I've said too much, honestly, already. You've said too much. Um, yes. Yeah. Um. So okay, I mean, you already mentioned despair, and that's another one that I think is is uh, like obvious based on how I've defined vampire. Vampire special part and... four could just be us reanalyzing despair in terms of vampires. Mm-hmm. It really We did, did that to some extent, um, I think, in the actual episodes about despair without... Without using the words. Yeah. <laughs> At least one of us didn't use the words. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and that's like, you mentioned Gene Wolfe as being famous for the unreliable slash vampiric narrator, and that's another thing that uh, Nabokov is... He's good right. at like Lolita is the obvious one, but despair is up there too. Right. Um, so, um, Playboy of the Western Worlds. I think the the protagonist is um could be potentially called vampiric. Yeah, My, some um, of it might depend on how you played him, but right, exactly that's... that. And that's the thing with a play right. is there's so much open to an actor's interpretation or a director's interpretation on that. Right, but it's it's not just the author. Certainly worth mentioning in this connection. Mm-hmm. There, yeah, there's a potential there. Yeah. Um, I, the, the, there's the the category here that I want to talk about that I think covers um four four of the books we've discussed. Um, Tristram Shandy. I am a cat. Don Quixote, and Jacques the Fatalist. You said four books, but I only heard you name one book. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm glad we see it the same way. Um, that in, in, in those four books, the vampiric concept, I think, is simultaneously unimportant and intriguing. Sure. Um unimportant because i don't think it's about that sort of conflict any of them is about that sort of conflict but intriguing because when we talk about like categories of conflict and i mentioned the classical ones earlier when you talk about man versus self you could make that argument and put that as a layer over like don quixote sure and turn him kind of into a vampire into himself um 
a, a, that 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 solipsistic idea that nothing else exists except for what I am consuming and what's what's going on with me. Even though in that effort, I'm also trying to find my place and find um, how I operate within this predetermined state. I mean, we talked sure. about fate a lot, especially with Jacques the Fatalist, right. um, and that ties in also with. Tristram Shandy, I am a cat. Those yeah. sorts of places too. Um, um, with especially Don Quixote, uh, it, a thing that occurs to me, like first of all, what you just said depends greatly on your conception mm-hmm. of the self. Um, yes, <laughs> which to unpack that is just us rediscussing Lost in the Cosmos by Walker Percy, which we don't have time mm-hmm. to do at this point, but um, could be interesting. Uh, it almost I like the word redisgusting. What's that? I like the word redisgusting. By the way, uh, that's either not I, I'm standing by not what I said or what I said, and um, I guess the recording will determine that uh, for posterity. <laughs> um, but now I forgot what it's going to say. Uh, oh, lost in the cast. So the idea that Don Quixote could be a vampire. Partially depends also on your view of the Holy Fool, which mm-hmm. it occurs to me, you, you've talked about, you know, the vampire archetype being the direct inversion of the Christ archetype or the, the Messiah mm-hmm. archetype could also be an inversion of the Holy Fool because the Holy yep. Fool is classically like someone who views the world in a way that is not real or is not the reality that most people around them perceive but mm-hmm. by the strength of their viewing it that way they change the world to be more like the way that they view it and right exactly how you you sort of think about all of the things i just said in that definition could make them you know a vampire or the opposite of a vampire and maybe right. that's and so here's the question about that holy fool like in what image do they view the world is it in their own image right that makes them a vampire and i think that like is what modulates the holy fool archetype because Mm -hmm. you know classically in like christian literature it would be that the holy fool is better at viewing the world in the image of christ than the world around them is um Mm -hmm. modern conceptions of the holy fool sort of very you know sort of depending on on the story and the the you know the author probably you know or whatever um so that's a that's a question you'd have to answer on an individual work basis rather than a conceptual basis but it's an interesting thought for sure yeah um yeah so that's that's like Don Quixote, but Jacques the Fatalist, Tristram Shandy, and I am a cat uh, could occupy Which in, different. For the purposes of this, like they're all like reflections and echoes of Don Quixote in my brain. Sure, um, for... <laughs> but it's like each <laughs> of them could di- exist on a different point along a spectrum potentially. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, cats are vampires like i will i will stand by that so it's like that could be an extreme end of the spectrum but i love jacques i have two of them right but but they're vampires vampires. (laughs) um jacques the fatalist might be a cat though 
And Tristram Shandy himself is probably a dog. So I don't know how any of that sort of fits in here, but here we are, I guess. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot in there that, that, that's why I say like, it doesn't matter. This, this paradigm of vampire doesn't matter for those books, but also could be very intriguing. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter in like books. a holistic way, but it could be a, a way into thinking about different aspects of them. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, our, so our, our two most recent books I want to touch on really quick. Yeah. End of the Affair uh, by Graham Greene. Um, is... the, the narrator is, like, quite vampiric. Oh, I was going to say, based on one of the things and... you said before, was like, is God a vampire? And that's the other thing. In his view, God is the vampire. Right. Um, which is a very vampiric take. Right, it's one of those, it's another <laughs> one of those, like, Graham Greene paradoxes or you know things that green himself as we discussed in those episodes might find unfair Mm -hmm. that he did um of like you either have to view god as a vampire or the narrator as a vampire and you don't have really in between no you can't really choose between yeah i mean you can't yeah yeah, you You have to choose one or the other basically right Right. choose between is a really dumb phrase anyway (laughs) Just depends on how it's employed. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, and then the the one before that was uh, Snowflower and the Secret Fan. And I was in that actually like, going to ask you about Snowflower if you didn't bring it up yourself. Okay. Do Do you have a specific question about? No. Just what okay. about Just it? About like, it and vampire. That's the question. So he, I think it's really interesting to think of the the par- the vampiric paradigm in terms of this book. Because the narrator, Lily, is potentially the most vampiric character. Yeah. um, Perhaps barring a few others. But I think what's really interesting there is she is a vampire that she is also discovering. Right. Um, Like she's she's seeing the truth of her own reflection. Yeah. How much of a vampire Um, can you be if you admit that you're a vampire? Right. And so it's a vampire. She's a vampire with a redemption arc. Right. And I and I mean that um, as like a literal question, not a rhetorical question that's supposed to lead to some specific conclusion. Oh, sure. But yeah. 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 Well, and, and I think that's that's basically the answer that like she yes, she's a vampire, and if she didn't have the self realization, um because because that's the thing, like, in order for a, a a vampire to be a solipsist, you have to lie to yourself. Right. Um that you know, nothing else exists. Right. I am the only thing that exists. But if it can be proved to you that other things exist, which you can talk about like having a perspective opened up to you uh, as maybe the most simplest way of, of seeing that, you know, Lily thinks that she's got everything right, but then she realizes, oh, Snowflower saw it differently right. and had a different perspective on this. By seeing a different perspective, she's broken out of the solip system. She's not a uh, solip system. I liked what That's I That's actually very good. Yeah. That. Um, and and, uh and and winds up seeing the truth of it and gets to a a redemption and she's given a a resurrection out of that that vampirism which is another thing that like vampires falsify about the christ image the resurrection idea that vampires are falsely resurrected um they have uh undeath right yeah anyway excellent um, um, so that's that's my my big scattershot sort of take on on our podcast here. Sure. Um, 
all over the place. I don't know what order I went in. I just kind of, as I thought of it. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it worked. Um, I tried to keep you honest with my questions, but perhaps you've just sure. taken me in to sort of your way of viewing the world that is the only correct way. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, who's to say? Uh, <laughs> me. Oh, I was going to say the gentle listener, but I guess I guess it's oh. you. Um, yeah, wait, why are good. your... Are, are your teeth in my neck? No, don't, don't worry about it. Oh, okay, good. Um, I'm glad I invited you into chat earlier, so we're we're good. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Well, uh, that said, um, I think we are at time for now. I don't know for sure. I feel like there may be room for more vampire specials in our future. Um, mm-hmm. we've certainly had. You know, more than one first paragraph special. So at the very least, to balance the books between uh, Michael, the only person that exists, and me, the figment of his (laughs) imagination. Seems like we might have to do that. But, you know, we'll see. Uh, Mm -hmm. In the meantime, our next book for this show is Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Uh, Please feel free to read along. Um, give us your feedback in the contact section of the Tapestry Radio wait website thank you I was going to say Tap House and I was like that's not yet Um, yeah uh, uh, you go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast there is a form you can fill it out you can also fill out that form uh, to submit your homework um, we will do your homework not well, not on time, and not in a way that doesn't get you hauled off to plagiarism jail, but in a way that's funny, and that's really the most important <laughs> thing. Um, check out the other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network. Those include Intermission, our backstage audio drama podcast, uh, Us Play Fiasco, our Fiasco Real Play RPG podcast, Pokemon Rollout, uh, and other shows that are also on it. Did I miss any, like, ones I should be talking about, Michael? Did you talk about Freddy Goes to a Podcast? There is Freddy Goes to a Podcast, which is our other literature podcast where three grown men read through the Freddy the Pig series of books from a hundred years ago. Uh, and it's mm-hmm. a good time. Uh, r slash better than it sounds. Um, <laughs> and then, yeah, uh, if you like this show... Uh, please like rate us, review us wherever you get your podcasts. That's really the only way we grow. Um, Michael, is there anywhere online you want them to find you? I mean, I am everywhere. So no, um, <laughs> I'm on Twitter at M G L I L I E N T H A L. Yes. I am on Twitter at Bjartlet. That's at B J A R T L E T T. Um, and until next time, gentle listener, just remember it's our podcast and I'll cry unless Michael gives his fangs out of my head. <laughs> That's it. That's the end. Good. <laughs> Obscurantism and obfuscation. 
orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From our fancy to yours.